let your servant depart in peace. O Master, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. A light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people is Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Hladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. We have reached the end of our series on the Song of Simeon, that last great canticle in Vespers. Um, Well, I don't think we've used the word canticle before in this podcast. Can we maybe define the word canticle? Because sometimes this is called canticle and the word canticle appears. The word ode appears, I think, sometimes interchangeably. Can we just do a quick defining of words there, Father Jeffrey? Absolutely. Um, I I think, you know, there's a kind of liturgical theologian speak that um, sometimes gets applied to to things like this. I mean, in essence, a canticle is simply another word for a hymn or a chant. I mean, you can sort of infer it's a a short hymn, a short chant. I mean, it comes from the the Latin. Um, The Greek word, um, the the word that comes from the Greek, ode, uh, is pretty much interchangeable in terms of, you know, the way liturgical theologians talk about these. So these are essentially, when we talk about liturgy hours and so forth, these are hymns that have come from the Bible. And so we're going to talk about them in a big way when we eventually get to Orthros or Matins, uh, because the whole canon is constructed out of these canticles or odes. But uh, in uh, Vespers, we have this Song of Simeon, which is one of these biblical odes or canticles. It's a hymn that we are we are able to discern in the original biblical text was already kind of composed in that fashion as a hymn, as a chant. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's where we get the, the word canticle. So if East and West liturgical theologians, if you, if you mentioned canticle, they think of a certain number of things. So in the Gospel of Luke, the Benedictus, the, the Song of Zechariah, the Magnificat, the Song of Mary, this, the Nunc Dimitis, uh, the Song of Simeon. And then, of course, there's a whole series of Old Testament ones um, as well that, that feed into the various parts of Liturgy of the Hours. But um, you'll find sometimes the liturgies will say canticle, sometimes ode, they mean the same thing. Well, that did not take us long to get on a, you know, on a tangent there. Yeah, for sure. It's like not even two minutes in. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yes. So the canticle of Simeon, the song of Simeon, the ode of Simeon, whatever word you want to use. Uh, it's that last great song at the end of Vespers. I'll just read it again here. Now let your servant depart in peace, O master, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This song 
today, in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about how does this song actually affect your life outside of Vespers? So, so far in the series, we've been discussing how does this song function within the context of Vespers, but now we're going to talk about how does this song function without the context, like outside of the context of Vespers. Um, We can definitely take this in a lot of directions, Father Jeffrey. The first one I want to take it in, though, is maybe a bit macabre. Um, talking about death is—is is that a good place to start? Well, in the in the mouth of Simeon, obviously, this is at the end of his life, so it's, it's it makes sense, yeah, for sure, to to kind of yeah. take it in that direction. Yeah, like now let your servant depart in peace doesn't just mean okay, you know, it's the end of the service. Let's head out, get back to our car, and drive home or something. Um, there's that overtones, if not just explicit reference to death right now let us die in peace for you know according to your word or your promise for my eyes have seen your salvation um one of the beautiful traditions i'm not sure how ubiquitous this is in orthodox and uh, byzantine rites but there i have seen uh, on a number of occasions the tradition of the moment you know after you know in the internment this kind of the service is done and then they're actually lowering the casket into the ground and some people will gather and as that's happening they will actually sing this song and it's rather beautiful right you can imagine now let your servant depart in peace being sung in these beautiful melodies as somebody is actually being put in the ground and to me that is one clear reference in my own life something that i've seen where it really has affected the my life outside of vespers because this song i think does have this connection with you know when i sing it or when i think about it the end of my own life maybe even you know to be a little prideful my legacy come to my mind um i'm not sure if you've been exposed to that tradition or how ubiquitous it is but um i'll throw it over to you father jeffrey yeah well certainly you know there um or at the moment of death, even um, the idea of this, you know, song, this canticle, kind of defining the moment, um, you know, in both Eastern and Western, you know, liturgical tradition and church history, saints' lives refer to it. Uh, this is this is a pretty common place to go in terms of thinking about what what actually constitutes a good death. We have in the, the the liturgy. We heard earlier the the litany of supplication, where we pray for a Christian end to our life, painless, blameless, and peaceful, as one way of expressing what a good Christian death looks like. Well, this song really represents a kind of another vision, similar and 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 like unto it, vision of what a good Christian death is all about. That we could say words such as these, or others could express or sing them, you know, on our behalf, that it's a fitting kind of representation of that moment, you know, that we're departing in peace, you know, so painless, blameless, and peaceful. Um, and, and what kind of death is it? Well, the, the whole shape of one's death is actually a function of the life that preceded it, right? Uh, you don't just in the moment have a good death, having lived however you want, right? You have to, the good death, the good ending to one's life is entirely down to what led up to that, to that moment. I'm not you know, denying the possibility of a deathbed conversion of such. But I mean, in, in principle, if you want to have a good death, 
Father Yuri, start planning today, right? Okay. It's, it's, it's not about, you know, in the moment, I'll think about it, right? And I'll sing this this hymn or I'll, you know, I'll pray something um, special and, and that will transform that moment. No, I mean, what we have here in the figure of St. Simeon himself is the man who was righteous and devout and who waited on the Lord, right? And so this very hymn is an expression, not of a moment, but of a lifetime, not of that kind of singular time in which he's breathing his last breath, but of every breath in his life, which led up to that moment. And I mean, you could look at that in both ways. It's, it's how we live that determines our death, but it's how, the other way of thinking about it is, it's how we want to die that should determine how we live. And for St. Simeon, that was definitely the case, right? He wanted to be the one who could say, my eyes have seen the salvation which God has prepared before the face of all people, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. These words that came from the prophecy of Isaiah, it was given to him, it was promised to him that he would see that. And he dedicated his life to that reality. And every moment of that devout and righteous life was lived for that moment that immediately preceded him taking his last breath, that, that indeed he's able to depart in peace because he has seen the salvation that God has prepared, right? And, and would that we could all say that, that somehow we've lived our lives, that regardless of circumstances and regardless of the the kinds of slings and arrows of fate and fortune that somehow we're able to say we've detected in this we've seen with our eyes god's salvific work his love his grace his power at work in the world if we can say that we've done that then indeed we will be able to depart in peace we will have lived according to god's word and we will have fulfilled our very purpose here uh, in this transitory life as we await the fullness of the kingdom so in so many ways saint simeon is this paradigmatic you know life and death well lived well well accomplished well done i used to uh two of my previous jobs i would have the same ritual when i finished a shift right so i would you know say the same words or, or play the same song over the speakers and over time what happens is that as you do these you know rituals um they become kind of part of your routine but they also become they, they take on this deeper meaning as well. And finally, when it's your last shift, you know, the one example I'm thinking of is when I was at Starbucks, when it was my last shift and I did that routine, it, the, the meaning of that routine skyrocketed, right? Because in that, uh, it was symbolic in the sense that it brought together all of the memories, all of the experience, and it all of that, all of my time there rushed into that moment, right? And I think that's something similar that we do with this song is we sing it at the end of every Vespers, right? And it's, it's, it's not, we don't sing it and it's forgotten and not in our life anymore. We sing it and then we sing it next week and we sing it next week and maybe we sing it every day if we're, we're a monk or, or maybe we do this at home as part of our routine. And over time, when it gets, you know, maybe close to the, I mean, I've, I mean, maybe it's the end of my life right now. I don't know. Um, but you may uh, have already sung <laughs> it for the last time, brother. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, um, but you know, that time where you sing it, 
you're not just singing it randomly at that point. No. Actually, all of the experiences and the memories, maybe not the memories rushing into your mind, but definitely the emotions associated with those memories can come rushing into that moment, right? And, and it can take on a very profound, profound meaning. Um, that's just me going off on a tangent. Not sure if you want to add anything to that, Father Jeffrey. We could always go on to the next aspect, if you like. Well, I just want to mention something which came to mind mm -hmm. as you were describing that. And we talked before when we were talking about Gladsome Light, the Fossilaron, about the death of St. Macrina and how it happened, you know, as the evening light was being brought in, right? So that ritual that we talked about that every hearth and home had that was connected to then the, the service of Vespers, the lighting of the, the evening lamps and the singing of, of gladsome light, re rejoicing in that evening light coming. Well, as that light was being brought into her and she was dying, the words of, of gladsome light came onto her lips. So it was that similar kind of moment that every single time that had been done ritually and, you know, with the hymns and chants of the service and everything were kind of concentrated, you know, in that moment. And I hope, you know, I, all of our listeners are able to achieve the same thing. At the moment of their death, there'll be a kind of liturgically rich, um, you know, ritually symbolic moment that is somehow connected um, to the, the worship of the church, the church year and so forth. And all kinds of things we can latch on to in this way. But certainly this song of Simeon is, is one of those moments. Can it possibly be that it will be on our hearts and lips as we take our last mortal breath? The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience. If you become a patron now, you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes, including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy. To get access to this private podcast, go to pryingpriest.com. Looking forward to having you join our growing community on Patreon. Now back to the show. Another major aspect of this song that I think, you know, it has to change the way that you live outside of Vespers, right? You're, I don't think you're quite singing it right unless it changes the way that you live outside of Vespers. That second line, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which I've prepared before the face of all people. Well, if you think about that story, there was baby Jesus, right? Jesus as an infant child. Lots of people saw him, but not lots of people saw the salvation, which God prepared before the face of all people when they looked at him. So what is it about Simeon that made him able to see the salvation of all people, right? There, there's this vision or this ability to see into the depths of things that Simeon had. And I think we are asked to also have those eyes. And those eyes go beyond just seeing Vespers as kind of this enacted drama of the love of God and the connection of the divine with the, with the creation. Um, I think... We're asked to go out into the world and to be able to see into the depths of things and to see salvation um, and the saved creation. Um, do you want to take it from there, Father Jeffrey? Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really important um, insight here. We have this way, and we do this in icons and everything, of narrowing down the frame of 
reference, you know, the of, of all these commemorations and, and so forth, right? So, I mean, just like any photographer frames his or her subject and, you know, excludes an awful lot of the picture in order to focus our attention on particular subjects. Um, so, you know, every story does that, every hymn does that, every icon does that, uh, and so forth. So, I mean, let's, let's take it from that frame where we have Simeon receiving from our Lord's mother and his foster father, the infant Jesus, the Emmanuel, come into the world uh, to save it. And, and yes, we can get so caught up in, in the feast of the meeting of the Lord and the, the gospel texts and everything and say, well, of course, this is obvious, isn't it? Look, Jesus has come. He's the one, you know, he ticks all the boxes. He Israel's expecting him, you know, and, you know, it's all just going to unfold, you know, from here. But if we take that frame and now we start zooming out, what do we actually see? We see, you know, this is taking place in a temple that is not really God's temple. It's the second temple. It's the it's the Herodian temple. It's constantly under construction. So you can imagine not just a beautifully appointed temple, but one with scaffolding all over because it's constantly being rebuilt and redone. And it's a temple that's compromised. It's a temple that's associated with with those Judeans who are kind of in league with the, the oppressive Roman occupying forces, right? So you have, uh, you know, the Sanhedrin and you have the ruling priests and scribes who are, you know, their, their devotion to Israel proper and to the people of God is suspect. They are, they are compromised. It's all part of this temple complex and authority and everything. That's happening right around this thing. And of course, there's those ghastly money changers and all kinds of things going on in that temple complex that shouldn't be. Our Lord will eventually address that when he comes back to the temple, right? Many years later. Now keep zooming out. What else are you seeing, you know, in Jerusalem? Well, this is very much a city under siege. You know, uh, Judea is directly under the, the control of the Roman governor. And you, know, you can hardly move but for Roman soldiers oppressing you and stopping you and carding you and, and you know, wondering what you're about. You can't do your normal business. It's barely cap- possible to go up to the temple on the normal feast days and to do the normal religious obligations as a faithful member of God's covenant community. The the, the Romans are making that difficult. The, the When you go into some of the outer provinces like Galilee, you know, maybe there's a little bit more freedom there, but Judea is definitely under the Roman boot. And as a telling reminder of that, it's not been very long at all. We're talking a year or two since there was an uprising led by a Judas, another Judas, and hundreds, hundreds of young Jewish men were crucified. And the crosses are probably still you know, dotting the hills around Jerusalem. And so that's the environment. That's, it seems hopeless. All of the hopes of Israel having her own king, her own temple purified with God's presence returning, and that all the nations would know that Israel's God, Yahweh, was the true God of all the world. Those hopes seem further than ever from being accomplished. I mean, we have, even after the Babylonian captivity and all of that, this seems like we're at the furthest point from the possible, you know, resolution of those promises ever. 
right? And Simeon is, despite all of that, he makes his way to the temple every day through the Roman gauntlet, through those money changers, through the scaffolding, past the priests who are compromised, and he waits as a devout and righteous man in the midst of all of that. And on that day, a baby, a baby, 40 days old is brought to him. And he's surrounded by all of this, which so which shows that not only is Israel's God not the true God, but the whole thing is hopeless. It's, it's, it's going in the wrong direction. There's no hope that any of these promises will ever be fulfilled. And he looks at that baby and says, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people. What does he mean by salvation? He's not talking about, okay, well, now I get to escape all of this. My soul is going to leave my my prison of a body and I at least get to escape and be with God, get away from all of this. He means precisely those things that are expected. My eyes have seen your salvation, meaning there is a king now in Jerusalem. My eyes have seen your salvation, meaning that God has come back to his temple. My eyes have seen your salvation, meaning all the nations are going to know this and that the one true God will be revealed before all the nations. That's what he's meaning. And it seems impossible in that moment. Nobody else. It's not just we missed, you know, the fact that there's a savior in that baby. It's the fact that nothing suggests that God's salvation is being revealed in this moment. And yet being devout, being righteous, he is able to penetrate through that gloom and exile and suffering and oppression past all the crucifixes that are dotting the landscape, past all the Roman soldiers, past all the compromise and intrigue and you know uh, sin that surrounds the people there. And he's able to say, my eyes have seen your salvation. If we can have this we just were talking about how can we live a life like Simeon and die a, a death like Simeon. If we can live a life like this, that no matter what happens in our life, we're able to see through that to God's saving grace and power and love, then we too will have actually lived and enacted this beautiful song that we can see salvation despite all appearances, despite everything arguing the opposite. God is the God of all. He is king, he rules, he's sovereign, and he is working it all out so that he will eventually be all in all and the kingdom will be fully revealed. That is the salvation that we can see even now, even in despite all of our suffering and toils and struggles in this life, like Simeon, who was hardly living at a high point in history, except that it became the not only the high point, but the nexus point of all space and time, the coming of our Lord into the world. But it was at a dark moment indeed that he was able to see that light. There's a fancy orthodox word that sometimes orthodox people like to throw around um, called theoria. And I'm wondering, Father Jeffrey, if you'd be able to relate kind of what is theoria relative to what we were just talking about? Okay, well, it's one of the Greek words for seeing, right? Um, and uh, there's a whole range of them, which, you know, they don't have 
absolutely hard and fast and neat and tidy categories, much as we would like sometimes these Greek words to, to say, well, in, you know, in English, there's one word for, for seeing, except there are several. Uh, but in Greek, there's a whole bunch and they all mean these very particular different things. It's not always the case, but generally, uh, theoria means you know, this kind of insight, this, this kind of seeing beyond what is apparent into what is, you know, uh, the, the kind of deeper inner reality of something. And it's certainly the way patristic tradition will, will pick that up. So various church fathers will talk about this being one of the, the kind of gifts of the spirit. It's a, it's an act of enlightenment or illumination of the Holy Spirit coming within us. They'll talk about that as being one of the goals of eating, even reading the scripture. Right, that we can see beyond the letter on the page to kind of some uh, inner spiritual meaning, whether it's typological or even, you know, in the Alexandrian school, often more allegorical um, understanding, but certainly, you know, eschatological, Christological. So we read Psalms. You know, in the Old Testament, and we, we we see the whole life of Christ. The whole gospel is told through the Psalms. Well, that's not the literal kind of historical on the surface meaning. But if we look with this kind of deeper way of seeing, we can see that that reality, you know, is already there. Well, that way of reading texts or of reading history even is uh, is something that is applied also to our whole life, right? That we can see, we can learn spiritually with spiritual eyes, the eyes of the soul, if you, if you as it were, to, to kind of see past realities to what is really happening. I mean, the, the whole tradition of writing lives of the saints and writing them in a particular way, even the gospels themselves are written, you know, in, in this kind of, kind of way, because, you know, you have to recognize that they're all written, you know, post, you know, death and resurrection of Christ post his ascension, post Pentecost, these gospels get written down. And so there are, I mean, there's ways in which the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell the story of a gradual enlightenment of the disciples, but there's certain things that they're being revealed and focused on that you'd only have focused on because of the resurrection and ascension of Christ, right? They, you know, the, the average person looking at what's happening in this scene in the Gospel of Luke, let alone any of the scenes in the Gospel, if you were just looking with a camera lens, for example, that kind of agnostic or you know detached camera lens view, you wouldn't be seeing this. You know, take the baptism of Christ. Who heard the voice? Who saw the dove? Who knew this was the anointing of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, uh, except those who are able to look back with this kind of spiritual insight into the moment, right? And so it's possible that the same reality on the surface can be seen in different ways. Some don't see past the surface. Others read other things into that or interpret every event in different ways. And that's this idea of this kind of spiritual way of seeing uh, that ultimately is, is informed by the light of the resurrection, by the light of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit after Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the world, so that we can see more deeply into the reality you know, of things. And so this is the kind of insight that St. Simeon demonstrates, right? That he's, I mean, there's nothing, nothing to suggest he's seen salvation. 
except his capacity to see beyond the surface into the inner reality of, of things. And of course, he's precisely right. And he, he has further insights too. We already spoke about too, about talking to Mary the Theotokos and saying that, you know, a sword will pierce her heart. He's able to kind of prophetically see how that salvation is going to have to unfold. Now that part maybe is a little easier to predict than seeing salvation in the first place, because of course the whole reality of Israel that Simeon knows is one of swords piercing hearts. So that's that's you know, not too many points for that one in a sense, but the reality is he's able to say how God's plan is at work in this infant child brought into the temple despite all the appearances around through, through this theoria, this spiritual insight, this inner way of seeing past the physical reality on the surface. And I think we're asked as, as Orthodox Christians to have theoria in, in our own life, right? To be, to be able to, in our families, perceive the activity of God in, in our own life, in, in the faces of those that surround us. And and to foster a life, this is one of the reasons why we do things as Orthodox Christians, to foster a life which, you know, in, in, metaphorically might be uh, a life that is cleaning your Theoria glasses so that you can put them back on and actually see what is really there, the, 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 the inner workings of things. And um, Well, yeah, everything that goes wrong in our life and everything that we you know, feel disturbed about and worried about and anxious about, etc. The things that 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 bother us, the things that tempt us, it has everything to do with only seeing just so deeply and not very deeply at all. Unfortunately, you know, we get sick and we get and we get despondent, or we we reject God because we think, you know, why has He abandoned us and so forth? We were only able to see beyond that to see that that suffering could actually lead to, you know, new insights into how to love others or how to allow God's own love to penetrate our hearts. Then we would see that it's no bad thing. And as I said, if we read the Gospels, if we read all the lives of the saints through church history. This often is the message of looking beyond what's happening on the surface. People are getting their heads chopped off in the stories of the martyrs. Well, that's not good, surely. This is a sign that God isn't actually sovereign or mighty or in control or that this is heading in the right direction. Except that if you look past the surface story, you'll see the truth of what's really happening here and that things are unfolding towards that point in time where the our Lord will be revealed as all in all and the kingdom fully inaugurated. Well, in, if we could only do that in our own lives and see every setback, every struggle, every suffering, every temptation as you know, something deeper, something that is ultimately leading in the right direction, then we wouldn't worry. We wouldn't be troubled. You know, we would know, as our Lord says to his disciples, you know, uh, you know, don't be downcast, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, right? And if we could live our lives with that sort of insight into everything, we would be able to not only have a more settled and uh, contented life in which we would live like St. Simeon here, but we would also be able to share that with others, right? We would be that light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of God's people, Israel. We would be able to continue to shine God's light to others so that they would also not be 
you know, despondent, downcast, sad, uh, you know, tormented by the things of this life, knowing that what lies be below the surface, behind, and in this deeper meaning of things, is something of the story of God's salvation, of His glory being revealed to the world. You've just finished listening to another public episode of Enacting the Kingdom. If you're getting value from this podcast and you'd like to support the show, you can head over to pryingpriest.com to become a patron. Also, five-star ratings with written reviews go a long way to getting the word out there about this show. Also, since Enacting the Kingdom is social media free, any word of mouth recommendations you can make to your friends and family would be greatly appreciated. We'll see you next time. 